I want to thank you for coming and being a part of our service today. I know it's hot, but I'll speak as fast as I can. And the faster I speak, the, the better the wind. It'll cool you down as I'm speaking. So that's always a good thing. But I want to be able to let you know that next week we're going to be going back inside, not because it is a revolution, but because it is a revelation. And that's the topic of today's message. It's not a revolution by God's people. It is a revelation of God to people. Very important to understand that. The church is not into riots and rebelling and standing up and screaming and yelling. No, we're into revealing the true God of the universe. Us going inside is a revelation of God to people about four things. Number one, the sovereignty of God. Number two, the sufficiency of God's word. Number three, the supremacy of the gospel. And number four, the sanctification of God's people. If you want to know why we're going inside, those four reasons are why. And I'm going to weave those in and through the sermon this morning to help you understand that those four points are extremely crucial to understanding the church, the ministry of the church to the world, and the ministry of the church to one another. I think that so much has changed over the last 24 weeks. Think about it. When I went to Israel, everything was great. And we were one of the last planes to leave Israel because Israel had locked themselves down. And so we were one of the last people to leave the nation of Israel to come to America on March 8th. And when we arrived here, everything was different than when we left. And nothing has been the same since. Everything about what has happened has changed life in America. And everybody's asking the question, when will things get back to normal? When will things be the way they used to be? Will they ever be that way? And that's a, that's a logical question, is it not? That's a question every one of us asks and wonders whether or not things will go back to the way things used to be. The way they were back in January, back in February, back in December at Christmas time, will things ever be the way they used to be? Great question. We would think that once the, the, the death rate went down, things would get back to the way they, they used to be. Once that, that they, we flattened the curve, things would get back to the way they used to be. And once we were able to reduce the, the number of people in the hospital, we'd get back to the way things used to be. And then we think, well, you know what? Once a vaccine comes, we can finally get back to the way things used to be. Really? Do you actually believe that? Dr. Tedros, who is the director of the World Health Organization, two weeks ago said these words, and I quote them, we will not, we cannot go back to the way things were. That's his quote. That's his words. We cannot go back to the way things used to be. Well, why not? How come we can't? That's what he says, and I quote, the COVID-19 pandemic has given new impetus to the need to accelerate efforts to respond to climate change. How does the virus fit together with climate change? The people who read this are absolutely confused. 
until you read what Bill Gates said at the 1st of August on his website, who was the biggest supporter of the World Health Organization as an individual, Bill Gates is. And this is what Bill Gates says, and I quote, the lesson of the corona pandemic is that the rest of us will have to sacrifice even more to save the earth from warming up. Think about that. Was all this about global warming to begin with way back in February and March? Was everything about the earth and, and how we respond to the earth? Or, or was it about something different? And one writer said this. He said, the pandemic and climate change share a specific connection. That is, both are useful pretexts for mass social control. Both are unsolvable crises they can harness to bypass democracy and force powerless populations to obey their commands. Now it all makes sense. Now we all can begin to understand what's happening. They're looking to control the world. And that truly fits into prophecy and end times and the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet, all those things down the road. But all that fits in. Why do I say that? I say that to set the tone for this. There needs to be normalcy, and if there's not normalcy in the church, how do we ever, how do we ever reveal God to people? And so how do we best do that? How do we as a church exemplify the importance of church. I think that every one of us in America would say church is important, those of us who are evangelicals. But how important is it really? Everybody in, uh, um, in evangelicalism would say that the church is, is a priority, but is it really a priority? How do you know it's your priority? Let me give you one simple way to know whether or not the church is a priority in your life. Are you ready for this? Here it is. If you are waiting to hear what the governor says more than you are willing to do what God has already said, you value the governor over God. You value government over what God has already said. Most of us sit around saying, well, what's the governor going to say this week? Is he going to say we can go back in? Is he going to say that we can go back to normal? Can we go inside a restaurant and eat? Can we take off our masks? What's the government going to say this? Or are we willing to do what God has already said? Now you know how valuable the church is and how sufficient God's word is in your own personal heart. Every one of us needs to be able to sit back and say, you know what, what has God said on the issue? If God's word is sufficient, and it is, if the gospel is supreme, and it is, if God is sovereign, and he is, he has spoken to this issue. He has not left us floundering about what to do. Listen, 24 weeks ago, everybody in America, every church in America, be careful I'm going to say this, fell into the same trap. 
For 2,000 years, since the birth of the church, the church has functioned and gathered together and met and built the body and ministered to one another in a special and a unique and, and, and special way. For 2,000 years, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, comes this virus and we shut everything down. As if that's what God wanted us to do. Think about it. We didn't go back and say, what has God said about this? We just said, well, the virus must be strong and people are going to die. And so we're going to close down because that's the right thing to do. And so let's just lock it down. So for 10 weeks, we shut our doors. Now, granted, I'm not minimizing people's deaths. I'm not minimizing any of that. Please take it into context. We have to come to a realization. Listen, everybody here, for the most part, believes in Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed that a man wants to die after that the judgment. Every one of us believes in Psalm 139 that God has numbered all of our days so he knows exactly how long we're going to live, how we're going to die, when we're going to die. We all believe that, right? So 187,000 people who died because of the coronavirus or with the coronavirus or however you want to say it or however you, the numbers might be in your mind or whether they're true or not, all those people were going to die anyway in 2020. Do you think they wouldn't have died in 2020? No, because all their days were numbered. It was an appointed time for them to die. Death is a divine appointment. It's not an accident. It's a divine appointment by the living God who holds the keys to death in Hades. Do we believe in the sovereignty of God or don't we? Do, believe, do we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture or don't we? Do we believe in the supremacy of the gospel or don't we? You see, we presume, we presume that if we do everything the governor says, it's the best way for us to reach the world with the gospel. I want to I, I challenge that. I don't think that's the case at all. We think that if we, if, we, if we go outside because the governor says go outside, if we wear a mask because the governor said wear a mask, if we social distance because the governor says social distance, that we are doing the best thing to win the world to the gospel. I want to challenge that thinking. And I want to challenge it on this end, that do we believe in the supremacy of the gospel? Do we understand what the gospel is? Do we understand it's more than Jesus loves you? This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Don't we know that the, that the gospel is more than informational? It's act, actually transformational. We give information, but the gospel is not about information. It's about the transformation of a life. That's why Christ said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. We say... We believe in Acts 5, where the apostles were told not to preach the gospel. And they said, we must obey God rather than man. And all of a sudden, the church jumps to Romans 13 and says, we got to obey the governor and all that he says, unless he says we can't preach the gospel. But all we did was minimize the power of the gospel. All we did was minimize the truth of the gospel. All we did was minimize the transformational nature of the gospel. Because once I hear the gospel, it changes everything about my life. 
My whole life is revolutionized. The way I look at life, the way I look at the world, the way I look at law, the way I look at my governor, the way I look at God, everything changes. It's an absolute transformation of lifestyle. Everything changes about my life. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is transformational. It takes a life from the kingdom of darkness and transfers it into the kingdom of light, God's dear son. We come out of blindness into sight. And all of a sudden, our, the, our, our eyes can see the beauty and glory of the Lord. And now all we want to do is reveal that glory to other people. We want them to see the beauty of the Christ. And how important is that? It is so crucially important for every one of us. And so when we say, yes, Acts 5, we must obey God, not man. We must preach the gospel. Not only must we preach the gospel, we must live the gospel. We must show the gospel. We must show people what the gospel does to the person, to the inside of a man, to the inside of a woman, to erase all fear of death and to get us to trust in one another and to live intimately one with another. That is so important for every one of us to grasp. We are the church, the ecclesia, okay? It's defined this way. It's, 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 it's an assembly of those who have been called out. Called out of what? Called out of Satan and his enslavement to the Savior who now makes us slave because he has saved us from our enslavement to sin. And so therefore the ecclesia, which used of the church in the New Testament, are the assembly of those who have been called out. We are that assembly. There's a universal church of everybody who's included, and then there's a local church. And as a local church, we are an assembly of believers called out of darkness into light. And there are many metaphors in Scripture to describe who we are, right? We're, 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 we're the flock of God. We're the sheep, and he's the shepherd. He's the vine, and we're the branches, right? We're, we're called the household of God. But, but let, me, let me look at two metaphors with you to help you understand this. We are the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. We now are the bride. And because we're the bride, I love what one author says. He says, the bride belongs only to Christ. And she exists by his will and serves under his authority like any bridegroom, he will tolerate no assault on her purity or infringement of his headship rule over her. He is the bridegroom, and he will never tolerate anybody infringing on the headship of his bride. You see, we need to go back and understand what Christ says in his word about who we are, the identity of the believer, and what we are to portray. Think about it this way. As, as, a, as a husband and as a wife, as a bridegroom and as a, as a bride, as a bridegroom, I don't want anybody to infringe on the authority I have over my wife. I don't want anybody to assault the purity of my wife. But that's not on a human level. Think about it on a divine level. God will never tolerate anybody infringing on his bride, assaulting his bride in any area whatsoever. But not only are we the bride of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 11, verse number 2, but we are the body of Christ. We are actually the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, listen, we are designed 
to be intimate one with another, to be close one with another, to be able to, uh, uh, as a body, not to be disjointed, not to be fractured, not to exist in little house churches all around the community. God does not want the body fractured up into little communities. He wants the assembly of believers to come together and worship him and glorify his precious name. It's not wrong to have small groups and communities, but if you're relegated to only that, you've missed the importance of the body coming together, ministering to, get to, to one another, and serving one another, as the Bible explains. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, a book we're going to get to next week, I promise, Hebrews chapter 10, you know it well. It says this in verse number 24. And let us consider, that word consider, used one other time in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 3 verse number 1 when it says, let us consider the Christ. Let us think down, think deeply about the Christ. And now he picks up that same word and uses it in reference to the body of Christ. Let us now think down, think deeply, think intimately with all of our energy about how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We are to be actually engrossed with thinking about how I can minister to one another, how I can serve you, how I can be available to you, how I can pray for you, how I can bear your burdens, how I can come alongside and care for you, how I can come alongside and serve you, how I can come alongside and teach you, how I can come alongside and be for you what the body needs to be. We are to live for that. So but that's why, listen, that's why the church was never designed to be streamed live on television. Because you cannot experience that intimacy virtually. You can only experience the intimacy of the body when you're together, not when you're disjointed. A body's designed to be together. If I cut off my arm and throw it over there, it, it just does me no good. I can't serve it. Okay, I might be able to get to it and put it back on, but I can't sew it back together. You see, the problem is we can't be, afford to be disjointed. We have to be together. We have to be serving one another, not just on Sunday, but throughout the rest of the week as well. That's what the body of Christ is designed to do. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ, and we are designed to minister one to another without any infringement from those on the outside. So important for us to grasp. Listen, we, 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 we put this on the internet, and next week when we go back inside, we'll live stream the first service. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought you said that wasn't the best thing to do. It's not. But we know we have elderly people who cannot come. We have people who have pre-existing conditions who cannot come, and they probably shouldn't come. And so we want to still try to get something to them we're going to get the word of the Lord to them some way. But no way does that substitute for the body of Christ coming together and serving one another. Albert Moeller has written a book called The Gathering Storm. Anybody, anybody read that book yet? If you haven't read it, you need to get it. The Gathering Storm. He took the phrase from Winston Churchill way back in the 1940s because he was talking about the rise of the Nazis and their regime and how they're going to try to control the world. And nobody believed him. Nobody believed him. Until it happened. 
And that's how he rose to fame, and that's how he became the, the prime minister of England, and that's what made him the unique man that he was. But he talked about the gathering storm. It was all around Europe. It was everywhere, but no one saw it. And, and Al Mohler's point in the book is there's a gathering storm in America. It's all around us, and the church, it doesn't see it. It doesn't understand it. It's gathering all around us, and it's gathering it's getting darker and darker with each passing day, but the church is blind to it. And so Al Mohler has done a magnificent job of explaining how this gathering storm is infiltrating the church, how it's infiltrating our culture, how it's infiltrating everything that we do, and even our own personal lives. And in it, he says something that I have been saying for 30 years, but I'm a nobody, and nobody cares what I say, okay? Except maybe some of you, and of course my wife. And hopefully my kids. But for the most part, nobody cares what I have to say. But what he says in the book when it comes to the next generation, the gathering storm is so severe that the next generation is at stake. And in his book, he says these words. He says, <clears throat> he talks about three ways, three ways that we must apply the gospel to the next generation. He says, first, Christian parents must view church as the highest and utmost priority of their family's weekly schedule. Now, how many times have you heard me say that? Church is the most important decision you ever make. Where you go to church is the most important decision you ever make. Because as a father, you must lead your family to church. He is saying that church, the assembly of the believers, must be a regular part of your weekly events. It must be scheduled in. He goes on to say this. He said, we have surrendered Sunday school. We have surrendered youth ministry in many of our churches. And I'm a product, he says, of being involved in a local church many hours a week as a young boy and a teenager. He says his whole frame was shaped because he was in a church. And what God did and as a church, we exist to, to invest into your young people, to invest into your children. And this is what he says. He quotes Christian Smith, who is a research associate, who found that the one distinguishing mark among young people who continue in their church participation as adults was that they developed a warm and trusting relationship with an adult in the church other than their parents. In other words, when you bring your children to church, and there's another adult that's there. And they develop a relationship with that other adult outside of your family. That was the key distinguishing mark for those children to grow up and continue in the church as adults. Do you think it's not important for your children to come and be a part of youth ministry? Absolutely. Why would you even miss it? To have people discipling your young people, teaching your young people. How about our children's ministry? That those teachers who take time to prepare those lessons to invest into those children is vital to their spiritual development and their spiritual growth. Absolutely crucial. And then he says this. He says, many Christian parents have bought into the large, larger culture's portrait of the good childhood, complete with incessant sports activities, violin and ballet lessons, and activities perceived to boost a child's eventual college admissions application. When it comes to church activities with children and teenagers, the scariest words might well be a traveling team. Priorities become clear, both on the part of, their of the church and of the parents. 
Parents can hardly claim shock when their kids grow up and leave what they have never, ever really known. At that point, the opportunity is lost. Exposure to God's people and a gospel-saturated community is essential for the nurturing of children in this secular age. And all I can say is amen to that. Listen, we live in a secular age. And we now, therefore, need to invest into the next generation so they can grow up and teach their children and involve them into the local assembly of believers. This is absolutely essential. Why do we go back inside? Because of the supremacy of the gospel being taught to our children, to our youth, on a weekly basis, on a regular basis. Because of the sufficiency of God's word to speak to every issue that comes about, whether it's a pandemic or whether there's not one. Do you think that God left us floundering when a pandemic happens? Not on your life. In the book of Leviticus, the 13th to 14th chapter, he says, make sure you only quarantine those who are sick. Never, never does he ever tell us to quarantine those who are healthy. Never. And you know what? The world has followed that until now. Because the world is never locked down. The world has never stopped as it has during this pandemic. Does God speak to this issue? Absolutely. He says you quarantine those who are sick, those who are vulnerable. But those who are healthy, they continue their life as is. That's what God says. Do we believe in the sufficiency of God's word? Do we believe that God speaks to these issues? Then we must reveal that to the world. We must show the world what God's word says in the book of Leviticus. We must show the world what God says in the scriptures so that they can see the truth behind all that we say and do. That is so important. Thank you. You guys want to drink? So, on top of all that, understand this. I spoke to you back in early July about ecclesiastical authority. Maybe you don't remember that sermon. It's in the outline that we're going to give you after the service is over. You can go back and reveal it or, or read it again or listen to it again. But I talked about ecclesiastical authority. You know, theologians have spoken about sphere sovereignty for, for decades, Abraham Kuyper, back in the late 1800s, made the phrase sphere sovereignty popular. He talked about sphere sovereignty in government, sphere sovereignty in the church, sphere sovereignty in your family. And sphere sovereignty is defined this way. It is that each sphere of life has its own distinct responsibility and authority. It involves the idea of an all-encompassing created order designed and governed by God. So when we talk about ecclesiastical authority, we're talking about a sphere sovereignty. We talk about governmental authority, we're talking about sphere sovereignty. We talk about the family authority, we're talking about sphere sovereignty. So let me take it out of government for a moment and put it into your family to give you an illustration to help you understand how the church responds to government, okay? You're a woman, and you're married to an unbelieving husband. And your unbelieving husband has authority over you, sphere of sovereignty. He rules over your family. He is accountable, listen, to divine revelation. Just like Governor Newsom, Newsom is accountable to divine revelation. 
Please don't forget that. God ordains the powers that be, does he not? Governor, Governor Newsom was elected by the people of the state of California on the human level. On the divine level, he was placed into office by God alone. Therefore, he is now accountable to divine revelation. And who is it that helps the governor understand divine revelation? The church. The church does. Your husband is accountable to divine revelation, whether he is saved or not. He's still accountable. Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let no man separate. If you're married to an unbeliever, God joins you together. God puts you together. And therefore, that husband, he might be an unbeliever, has sphere sovereignty. He has rulership over his family as designed by God from the very beginning that Patrick talked about way back in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 2. God designed all that, okay? So your husband says to you, you can't go to church. Now you have a choice. To follow the authority of your husband given to you by God or to follow the authority granted to you as a bride in the body of Christ. You're at a crucial crossroads, are you not? If you submit to your husband and do what he says by not going to church, you disobey the commands of God in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And so you show your children it's okay to disobey the Word of God if your husband says so. But in all reality, is it the, and we presume that the best way to reach my husband is to do what he says. Because doesn't 1 Peter chapter 3 talk about verses 1 to 6, wives be submissive to your husbands? Yes, it does. Does it not say, call them Lord? Yes, it does. Does it not say that we are to follow them with the meek and quiet spirit? Yes, it does. But it doesn't talk about the fact in 1 Peter chapter 3 that once God has said do something and you don't do it, you're disobeying the law of God. You're disobeying the word of God. And so the, lo the most loving thing you can do is not say, yes, dear, I'll stay home. The most loving thing you can ever do is say to your husband, I love you with all my heart. I want to serve you. I want to be here for you. And I'm here for you every day of the week. But God has designed one day, the first day of the week, for me to honor him and worship him. And he is my Lord. He is my God. I am his bride. He is my bridegroom. I must go and do what he says. I love you. I want you to come with me. But you must understand, I cannot disobey the law of the Lord. I cannot turn my back on what God has told me to do. I cannot do that. That speaks volumes to your children. It tells your children that God's word is sufficient, that the gospel is supreme, that God is sovereign. He rules over all, and that the sanctification of God's people rises above everything else in your family. And they need to know that. They need to see that. They need to understand that. And you bring them with you because they need to be a part of a local body to understand that. That's, an that's just one example in a family situation where you have an unbelieving husband and a believing wife. Now, that's when the church steps in and helps. The church doesn't go to your house and say, as a pastor, I don't go to your house and say, hey, Nacho, pick up, put your shoes on, Nacho. 
Put your shoes on. I don't go to your house tell you to put your shoes on. I don't go to your house tell you to cut your yard. I don't go to your house tell you to clean up your house. Why? I don't have authority to do that. That's not my, that's not my realm. I have no authority to do that. I can't go into his house and tell him, give me your children. I'll spank them for you. Let me do it. Because you're not doing it. I don't have authority to do that. But as his pastor, I can counsel him. I can direct him and help him through issues. And I can also direct him in the way that he should go. But if there's sin involved, now the church steps in. Because if he disobeys the word of the Lord, right, he has not responded to the revelation of God, the church then steps in and directs him into the ways of God to reveal God's holiness to him and show him what he must do. Now you flip that over and put that in the government. Same is true. The governor Newsom has authority in this state. He understands his responsibility and he realizes that what he has done, in fact, on July 27th, he made it very clear he cannot mandate masks and he cannot mandate social distancing. He can only influence it. That's a direct quote from July 27th. Why? Because he knows, listen, he is accountable to two things. One he knows, one he doesn't. He's accountable to the highest law in the land, the Constitution. He's also accountable to the holiest law of the Lord, the revelation of God. He doesn't know that. But we are to show him that. He is accountable to a higher Isn't that what Paul did in Acts 25 with Festus? When Festus says, I'm going to take you to, to Jerusalem, and we're going to try you, and the, and the, and the Jews will, will, will come up with their conclusion as to what they're going to do with you. And Paul says, you can't do that. Sorry. Take a break. I appeal to Caesar. I want to go to Rome. What did Paul do? He appealed, in our terms, to the Constitution. He appealed to a higher authority. And what did Festus do? You're right. If you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you must go. Festus knew what Governor Newsom does not know. That there's a higher law in the land that you must submit to. You must fall submission to because that's the highest law in the land. Caesar was the highest law. You must appeal to Caesar. If you do, you, to Caesar you must go. Well, the same is true in our scenario. We have a constitution. And we don't do what we do because of the constitution in America. That's not why we're going back inside. But the governor is still, the mayor is still subject to the constitution. They swore to uphold. They swore to uphold it. So when Grace Community Church appeals, and they're right in the middle of a lawsuit right now, what did they say? They said Grace Community Church did not defy the governor. The governor defied the Constitution of America. That was their argument, and that's the argument they stand on, and that's a true argument. It's an absolute true argument. The governor of California defied the Constitution of America by putting mandates on people's lives, where they can go, what they can do, what they must wear. But you can't do that in the church, the body of Christ. You can't tell us that we have to wear masks. You can't tell us that we've got a social distance. You can't tell us that we can't be inside. And some will say, well, you know, it's just not a big deal. It's just a mask. Not a big, it's, it's just not singing a few songs. Who cares? So he says you can't take communion. It's just a few things of communion. You don't have, it's, we can take it when it's all said and done. And people say that. And then when they mandate, if they do, a, a vaccine, they'll say, well, it's just a vaccine. Just take the vaccine. It's just a vaccine. That's all it is. And then what if they do like they did in Russia, uh, China and they mandate cameras in your churches? 
So they want to hear and listen to everything you say about the LGBTQ movement, the Black Lives Movement, everything you say about abortion. They want to monitor it all. Because you say something against what they believe, they come and shut you down. Is that okay? You see, we have defined the gospel to such a small, little, minute sphere that we have allowed things to happen over time that when it comes time to finally take a stand, the gospel will not be seen as relevant anymore. We can't afford to do that. I've lived my whole life taking stands, from high school to taking a stand, to college to taking a stand, to working on a college campus to taking a stand against those who didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, to going to church at the open door and taking a stand because they didn't believe in the, in the theology of repentance. My whole life, my whole ministry has been nothing but stands because I stand and contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And I think that somehow we, during this whole time, this has been so good for the church because we've had to rethink, reevaluate, reaffirm our belief about the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And we as leaders, elders, have gotten together week after week after week to hash through these issues, to talk them through. What should we do? What can we do? How should we do this? Don't think that we just sit at home or sit on the beach drinking our virgin pina coladas and having a good time. That's not what it's about. We are meeting together. We're praying together. We're searching the scriptures together. We all want to be of one mind together. We don't want to be fractured. We want to make sure we're on the same page together, doing the same thing. So when you come to us and ask us questions, we can give you answers that are from the scriptures. That's very, very important. Listen, Romans 13 says these words. Oh, I got lots of time. I'm not even hot yet. Wow. Just think, man. When I start getting really hot, I'll start, start sweating. Heart. Sweat. Hot. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. Romans 13. Now remember, Peter says the same thing. Now you've got to ask yourself the question, does Paul say something different than what Peter says? Okay? Or is Paul saying the same thing Peter says? Because Peter, over in 1 Peter chapter 2, says these words. He says, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may, put, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Okay, so that's what Peter says. Paul says, Let each person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Are they saying the same thing? Answer, yes. Remember, who is Peter talking to? He's not talking to a church. He's talking to saints who are scattered all around. Okay? So he's not talking to a particular assembly of believers. He's talking to church, to, to Christians who are part of the universal body of Christ who are scattered all around parts of Asia. All right? He tells them, this is what you do, because you are to submit to governing authorities. That's what we do as citizens of this kingdom, the kingdom of man. So now when Paul comes along and is writing to the church at Rome, okay, so now he's writing to a church, he's saying, let each one of you be in subjection to the governing authorities. Is he saying the same thing Peter says? Answer, yes, he is. But even though he's talking to the church, he's talking to the individuals in the church. Why is he doing that? Understand context. Understand historical background. Understand what's happening here. Paul knows about the Jewish zealots. He knows how the zealots rise up against Rome. How the zealots understood we will have no 
Gentile be a king over us. We will only let Israelites be king over us. If an Israelite is not a king, we will fight against them. We will rebel against them. We will revolt against them. And that's what the zealots did. And the church of Rome was started by Jewish believers from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And they would go to Rome, go back to Rome, and they would begin this church, and Jewish converts would come, and Gentile converts would come, and it's a church filled with Jewish and Gentile converts. And Paul knows that. And Paul does not want the Jews to rise up like zealots and lead a march against Rome and be able to, to, to fight against Rome. He doesn't want that because that's not what the body of Christ does. So that's why he says, let each one of you be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. God established them. You need to follow their authority as individuals in the kingdom of man. But know this, we are a part also of the kingdom of God. We have a dual citizenship. And as members of the kingdom of God, we are called to be aliens and strangers in a foreign land. Listen, if you mirror the world, you will not minister to the world. We cannot mirror the world. We must be an antithesis to the world. That's why the Bible calls us aliens and strangers in a foreign land. We are pilgrims passing through. And if we hold on to that dearly, then we can manifest to people the beauty and glory of the Christ because we live a transformed life. And that's what we want to do. We want to be able to reveal Christ to people. We want to see the gospel, the gospel supreme, not just the information about the gospel, but what the gospel actually does, it transforms your life to the fact that you want to live out God's life through you. God wants to infuse you with his strength. The Holy Spirit lives within you. It's the lifeblood of the church. And so we want to live to the glory and honor of our God. We believe in the supremacy of the gospel. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. That Scripture speaks to every issue in life. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 talks about the fact that God's Word is sufficient to make the man of God thoroughly complete. 2 Peter 1, 3 tells us that everything that pertains to life and godliness is in the Word of God. God's Word is sufficient to us to speak to us during a time such as this, such as the pandemic. How do we respond? What do we need to do? How do we live our lives? I know, I know that all those people, we have nurses in our assembly who are part of those heroes that sit there and minister to people who are infected with the virus. We understand that they are our frontline heroes, and I don't want to minimize that in any way, but know this, know this, that every pastor, every believer in Christ is the true superhero. Why? I can never give you a vaccine to cure you physically, but I can give you the virtues of Scripture that will cure you eternally. Understand that. We can shoot you up with a vaccine and we can give you all the care and all the medication we can to help you physically. But the church of Jesus Christ infuses people with the strength of Jesus Christ himself and the virtues of the scripture so they understand that they can have eternal life. They don't, they don't need to fear death. We as a church should always remain open. We should never close our doors. And God forbid that we should ever even think about closing our doors ever again for any reason any reason. Think about that. The world needs what? The body of Christ. 
the bride of Christ, the church of Christ. We have hope. We live in hope. We serve our God, who is the God of hope. And so we leave our doors open. You come, we'll pray for you. You're sick, we'll visit you. We'll do whatever we can possibly do to be there by your side. When, when uh, 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 Sandy Hernandez called me about visiting her, her father, Robert Geisinger, she said, Would you, could you come visit him? She goes, I know it's the COVID time. She said, it doesn't make any difference. I'm going anyway. I'm going. And I went in there, and yes, I wore a mask because I want to be sensitive to him and everybody else. And Robert didn't have a mask on. And we sat there and we talked about things of eternity. And he shook my hand like he always does, that big old burry hand, and just grabbed a hold of my hand as if he hadn't lost any strength whatsoever. He says, Lance, how are you? I said, man, I'm doing great, Robert. How are you doing? He goes, ah, I'm, I'm close to glory. I said, you are. You are real close. And we prayed and we read scripture together. What a beautiful time. That's what the church of Jesus Christ does. It ministers to people who are sick and dying. We come alongside of them. We minister to families who are broken, who are in, in, in the throes of divorce, in the throes of physical and verbal abuse. We need to be there for those families. We cannot afford to close the doors of the church. Our church must always remain open to minister to the needs of people, whether believer or unbeliever, to the people of our church especially, to the world even more especially. They need the gospel, and we are to give them the gospel. Amen. And people always say, I close with this. It's what the pastor always says when he's got 20 more minutes to go. But I do close with this. People always say, well, if, if you just go inside and you don't require people to wear masks and you don't social distance and you, don't, you're, you just don't love your brother. How many times have you heard that? You just don't love your brother. Well, remember, love never rejoices in unrighteousness. It always rejoices in the truth, right? And God told Micah, Micah 6, verse number 8, what does the Lord require of you? That you act justly, righteously. Love mercy, walk humbly with your God, but make sure you act justly. And justice and righteousness in the Old Testament is the exact same Hebrew word. They're used interchangeably all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, God's throne is established by justice and righteousness. They're one and the same. We are to act justly. We are to do justice in this world. In a world where there is no justice, the church must stand firm on justice. And we do that by following what God says in his word. I can never love you truly and violate what God says. I cannot do that. True love always adheres to the word of God and follows the word of God uncompromisingly. And true love always rejoices in the truth of almighty God. Biblical love always operates within the parameters of God's Word and spiritual discernment. We need to be discerning. And Proverbs 15, 14 says that the foolish man, the foolish man believes everything. The foolish man believes everything, but the wise man, the discerning man, he weighs all his steps. 
we don't just believe everything that we hear. We take it through a grid of the scriptures. What does God say? What has God already said? The most loving thing that you can ever do to any one person is to act according to biblical truth. If you do that, you reveal God in his glory. So next week, we will be inside. Next week, we will have the opportunity to open our doors for ministry that will lead us into the fall to the future. We'll tell you what that means in a few moments after we close our service. But listen, as we understand God's call upon our life, I have not given you half of what I wanted to tell you today. That's because I have so much I want to say. But time and heat does not permit me to do so. If we were inside today, though, I could have gone on for another hour. But there's a reason we're outside. And so I'm going to preach one more day in shorts and a shirt with no tie. Uh, That was also another reason we're outside. But just to let you know that with God's, by God's grace, we truly want to reveal God to people. We truly want to be a proclaimers of the gospel of Christ. That's what we do. That's what we're about. That's all that matters. Because in the long run, we think of you and the ministry we have to you as the body of Christ. How do we best minister to you? How do we best serve you? How do we best come alongside of you so that the body of Christ can exercise its giftedness? So the body of Christ can exercise with spiritual discernment the teaching responsibilities that we have, that we can pray and serve and love one another in an intimate kind of way, greeting one another with a holy kiss in an intimate kind of way. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we want to do. And by God's grace, we'll do that. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for today. It's a great day, opportunity for us to worship and to honor your name. We pray, Lord, that you would use your word in all of our lives, that we would be able to understand our responsibility as it relates to you and your word. May we trust in your sovereign grace. May we hold dear the sufficiency of your word. May we hold high the supremacy of the gospel. And may we truly be involved in the sanctification of your people, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the flock of the true and living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.